I'm happy to welcome Jeff Goins to Words for Writers this morning. Jeff, as you know, is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, creator of the Tribe Concept and Conference, and author of Real Artists Don't Starve, which we'll be talking about, and all-around good guy. Is that true? Would your friends and family back that up? <laughs> I think most days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I aspire we, to be, yeah. Great. Um, so I loved the book. And I am your perfect target audience. So mm. I found it really meaningful. And uh, they actually uh, may be transformational. <laughs> so which is yes. what we want as writers for our work yes. to make an impact. And um, it really did change my thought process quite a bit. And we'll see how it changes what I do day to day. Uh, but I'm mm. already seeing some some impact. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, and as a, a Christian, as uh, one who works with a predominantly Christian audience and writers myself, mm -hmm. uh, I'd love to talk about how the message of Real Artists Don't Starve um, intersects with your faith. And um, if you can tell us a little bit about that, that would be kind of a fun angle. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do that. Thanks. So where do you see that message crossing over? What do you, uh, is there a faith element to the book? It's not evident. It's published by a Christian um, house, Thomas Nelson, but there's not obvious Christian content. Sure. Um, so a few things on that. One, um, I remember talking to author Shauna Nequist years ago about this very uh, question and I asked her if she was a Christian author. And, you know, Shauna is uh, an author. She, pub she publishes sort of Christian living memoir uh, books with um, uh, Zondervan and HarperCollins. And her father is Bill Hybels, the uh, pastor of uh, Willow Creek Church, right. one of the largest churches in America. And I said, are you a Christian author? And she said, I'm a Christian everything. <laughs> I'm a Christian mom. I'm a Christian wife. I'm a Christian baker. You know, I'm yeah. a Christian everything. Um, and I like what Madeline Langle says about, um, uh, Christian art. She talks about this in, in walking on water. She said, mm -hmm. uh, all good art is inherently Christian insofar as it's manifests what is good, true and beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the sense that it is, um, you know, we are all little creators, you know, made yeah. in the eyes of, of God. So yeah, I don't really think about that. I don't think about, um, I understand that there's a genre of, of books that, you know, use scripture or talk about, um, God more explicitly. Um, but as a Christian, I, I very early on as a writer made the decision that I didn't want my faith to necessarily be the subject of my writing. I wanted it to be the inspiration behind it. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, so this, yeah, this book is not a book just for people who go to church. Um, as a person who believes in God, um, I cannot help that that worldview influences every word I write and everything yeah. that I do. Um, but it's not like a Bible study book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite novelists, Brett Lott, says, and this is a paraphrase, but if you um, have the integrity of Christ, if you're writing with the integrity of Christ, that's going to come through in your mm -hmm. message, whether or not you quote scripture. You don't have to beat people over the head with it, but who you are will come through. And 
as someone with the Spirit of God in you, that will come through your writing, regardless of the message per se. Would you ascribe yeah. to that? That's kind of what you're saying. I mean, I, I like the the um, sort of Reformation work ethic, right? Yeah. Where, you know, uh, Martin Luther and, and others talked about this idea that, uh, well, I mean, it's a scriptural idea. Whatever you do, do it, you know, uh, as unto the Lord. Yeah. And, and so I think we have, we're all called to different vocations. And I don't ask the contractor who's building my deck or house or whatever, like, is this a Christian deck? Yeah. Um, you know, like I don't need him to chisel in John three sixteen in the floor, yeah. uh, in, in order for him to do his job. Uh, but you know, as a, you know, if this guy were a Christian, I would expect him to do what he did honestly and with yeah. integrity and I would want him to do it well. And one of the complaints that I have, uh, in our world today is there's this whole subculture of Christian things, Christian yeah. products, Christian books, Christian, whatever. I don't have any problem with that. Like I totally, I think that's great. Um, but I have a problem with it when like the product itself, um, the message, the idea, the service is not that good. It's not up to par with the, you know, quote unquote secular versions of it, whatever it is, whether yeah. you're a plumber or a writer uh, or an artist or whatever. Um, but you put like a Christian veneer on it. And, and all of a sudden, that's okay. And so I yeah. think as artists, as creatives, as writers, um, we can and should be doing as good of work, whatever that vocation is, as the rest of the world. And I would argue we should be aspiring to do it better because we're not just doing it to make a paycheck. We're doing it as unto the Lord. And so we should be giving it everything that we have. So, um, yeah, when I, when I write books – I write with my faith in mind, but I'm my, I feel like I'm called to not just reach people who go to church. Uh, I understand that some people, um, that's, that's their whole, uh, MO and I think that's mm -hmm. great. Uh, but I would say, you know, that my, uh, faith, um, cannot not influence the work that I do yeah. because it's who I am. Yeah. I like that. I love that perspective that we need to be doing it as well, if not better. Um, and that kind of hits on your uh, topic of apprenticeship mm -hmm. and um, in Real Artists Don't Starve. I love that. Uh, I coach writers and push for uh, continued learning. I hope to always continue learning myself and pushing myself as a writer. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that apprenticeship as an artist and um, kind of that theme in your book? Yeah. So, I mean, especially for writers, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, you're a writer. Um, yeah. A lot of people watching this, listening to this are probably writers as well. Um, uh, it is one of those things, like our job is something that anybody thinks they can do. You know, how many times have you been yeah. at the dentist or at the doctor or whatever? And you go, what do you do? I'm a writer or I'm an author. And they yeah. go, oh, I'd like to write a book someday. Like you would never go to the dentist and go, you know, I'd like to pull people's teeth out someday, <laughs> right? Like you never go to into surgery or in the emergency room and go, I'd like to cut people open someday. Like you understand that that is a craft that took years to perfect. Yeah. And even then, uh, it's a very risky, difficult endeavor. And, and, and those people get paid well for the investment of time and effort they've put into their career. Writing, however, is something that almost everybody has been doing since they were five years old. My son 
just started going to kindergarten and he's learning how to write. He's writing in cursive and writing his name and he's learning how to do that. And so, uh, you know, I have almost uh, 30 years of life on my son and yet like he can already do my job in the sense that like he can do the same thing I do. So it's not that impressive, you know? Um, on the other hand, um, in order to master any craft, um, it takes a lot of time, practice, and failure to get really, really good. And so um, I think the challenge in this age where anybody can self-publish a book, which I think is great, that's a wonderful opportunity, anybody can share their message with the world with a blog, that's amazing, there is this temptation to circumvent uh, the process of apprenticeship, which is a long and necessarily arduous journey to get to mastery. And um, I talk about this early on in the book because I think before you can stop starving as an artist, before you can make a living as a writer or creative, you have to get really, really good. And the only way to do that is not just to read a bunch of books and watch a bunch of YouTube videos and even practice a bunch. The best way to do it is to get around somebody who has already mastered the craft uh, and, and learn by watching them do what they do. And I think there's... Mm -hmm lots of ways that technology facilitates this today, but you cannot circumvent that. So yeah. uh, I use the um, archetype of Michelangelo in the book, one of the world's greatest artists of all time, also the wealthiest artist of the Renaissance. And what he did was he made it possible, he set a precedent that had never been achieved before, and he made it possible for many other artists in the Renaissance to follow in his footsteps. And so he is this thread woven throughout the book because I think he um, exemplifies a lot of the ideas that I talk about in the book. And uh, like many artists in the Renaissance, uh, Michelangelo went through a long uh, season of apprenticeship. And typically, this would begin when, you know, for mostly young men, when you were 12 or 13 years old, and you would enter the studio of an artist, an artisan, a shopkeeper, whatever the craft was, you would go work for a master. And you would do it for seven years. And often you would pay to be a part of this. It was like paying tuition at a college. And um, you would pay for the opportunity to basically be around the master, uh, get all of their genius on you, you know, like just yeah. be around it and, and get to see what it was like to practice this profession. And then um, at a certain point, about seven years in, six, seven years in, you would spend the next two or three years, you would leave the studio and you would be what was called a journeyman and you would literally travel. You would journey uh, from city to city, practicing your trade, getting paid for it. So you're a professional, but you weren't yet a master. And then often you'd settle in a city or return home and you would create something, depending on what the trade was, and you would submit it to the guild uh, of that particular trade. And uh, you would submit it for the approval of the guild. And this was called a masterpiece, a master work. Yeah. That's where we get the word from. And if the guild, if all the other masters in the guild said, this is good, this is like this guy has what it takes, then he can join us and become a master and then start taking on apprentices. And the cycle would begin all over again. We, however, live in this age of instant expertise where anybody with an internet connection and a brain can call themselves an expert or an author or a blank, whatever. And I think it is very important that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. If we want the attention and the um, rewards that our work, our messages deserve, then we need to be doing the diligent work of first 
um, getting good at that particular craft. That begins with apprenticeship, simply uh, surrounding yourself with people who are much further along in their journey who can tell you when you're doing things right and also tell you when you're doing things wrong. You wrote that um, the marks of a good apprentice are patience, perseverance, and humility. Mm-hmm. And that encompasses it. Uh, and I think the humility piece of it applies to the master as well uh, to take on an apprentice. You ha- there's a bit of humility in, in thinking that I'm not all that. <laughs> yeah. I, I have something to offer. I can serve the apprentice. The apprentice can serve the master, not me specifically, but a master uh, of a craft. Uh, so it seems that humility goes two ways. Yeah, I think that apprenticeship is the responsibility of the apprentice, not the master. Mm -hmm. Lots of young men and young women and not so young men and not so young women are looking for a mentor. Mm -hmm. I think the worst way to do this is to, uh, you know, go to somebody and say, Ginny, will you mentor me? Mm -hmm. No context, no relationship, no sense of whether or not they're going to take your advice seriously. Uh, I don't think that's the best way to do this. Uh, We have, you know, this interview is an example where Mm -hmm. we have access to information, conversations, ideas, um, uh, so much helpful, useful information that um, otherwise would be out of reach or we'd have to find that particular master, you know, somebody to study under. And now it's just, you know, it's all over the place. There's a glut of it. And, And so the challenge today is to, for an apprentice, for somebody who's beginning in, in a trade, is to demonstrate themselves worthy of an investment from a master. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the book, I talk about this idea that I call the case study strategy, yeah. where basically what you should do before I reach out to you, Jenny, and say, can you mentor me? Uh, because you're a public person and, and you have uh, tips and resources and ideas and recommendations out there on the internet in the world, that I can consume, my first job is to study mm-hmm. the work that you've done to then apply it so that I can prove myself, hey, like I'm I'm doing this stuff. And then I can approach you and say, hey, thanks for such and such. It helped me do this. And now I'd love some more help with, with that. Mm-hmm. And this takes time. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have a handful of initially virtual mentors that then became like real life in-person mentors. It never began with me asking them to mentor me. It always began with me saying, Hey, I read your book, listen to your podcast. I read your blog and I'm doing the stuff that you talk about and I am succeeding. And so the case study strategy is just really simple. I recommend people email or reach out to 10 influencers that they look up to. And before you do this, study their work, implement some of the things that they recommend and say, dear so-and-so, Thank you for X, something that they did. Dear Ginny, thank you for your podcast. Thank you mm-hmm. for your website. It helped me do why. I, I became a published author as, as a result of this particular article that you wrote. Uh, now I'm wondering about how to market it. Is there any other information or resources that you have for me? Uh, my sense, Ginny, is the um, likelihood that you were going to not only respond to that message, but take some time and maybe even invest in this person just went dramatically up versus somebody yeah. who says, hey, I'd love to pick your brain. about something that you've probably already written about, spoken about, talked about, and they just haven't done the work, they haven't done the research to find that information. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, You talk about in the, uh, your first section of the book about changing our mindsets. What, uh, 
can you talk about a few of the specific ways that we need to change our mindset and become thriving artists rather than starving artists? Yeah, I think that activity follows identity. So, you know, um, I think this is true in faith. I think it's true in writing. I think, I mean, it's just, I think it's part of life. Whatever you think you are, you tend to become. And so, and I think this is very important in kind of Christian circles. If I walk around going, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, there's going, I mean, there's something humbling about that. That's a good thing. I don't, I don't think that we should remove the cross from our conversations, but that's not the whole story of the gospel, right? The whole story of the gospel is you're a child of God. You know, you're not just forgiven, you are reborn, you are co-heirs with Christ. That's a different identity than I'm just a little old sinner, right? And uh, I think scripture speaks very clearly on that. And, and so the difference between somebody saying, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, uh, and somebody saying, I'm uh, a child of God, and the way they act and conduct themselves and and think about, you know, who they are and then therefore what they do is going to be dramatically different. And I think the same thing is true, you know, in terms of I'm an artist. And this, like, the reason I wrote this book was to try to debunk this idea that just because you are a creative, you're a writer, an artist, uh, whatever, that you can't make any money off of your work, that you can't make a living, that you can't thrive. And and to me, that means making a full-time living off of your work, if that's what you want to do, getting rewarded uh, for all your hard work. And, and like being happy doing it, right? Like actually enjoying the process. To me, that's what thriving means. Uh, I think that's possible for any creative who's willing to do the work and the book you know, talks about it. Uh, the way that we begin to change our mindset is um, first we have to believe it. We have to believe that we already are what we want to become. So you need to start with saying, I am a writer. I'm not saying I am an aspiring writer. I hope to be a writer someday because we've all been doing this since five. In a way, we all kind of are writers. <laughs> And now it's just about getting better. I asked uh, best-selling author Stephen Pressfield, who wrote a great book called The War of Art, highly mm-hmm. recommended to any uh, writers. Um, I said, when does a writer get to call himself a writer? And he says, you are when you say you are. Huh. So begin by calling yourself a writer. Mm-hmm. So you have to believe it. Then you have to behave like it. So if you start calling yourself a writer and you're not doing anything about it, you're faking it. And that's not that's not going to work. Um, you don't fake it till you make it. You believe it till you become it. So you believe, then you behave, you start doing something small every single day to make this true. You have to keep earning your title, as Derek Sivers likes to say. Uh, and then lastly, you become it. Believe, behave, become. And so I think very practically, if you want if you want to change your life, if you want to recreate your story, you want to become a writer, an artist, an entrepreneur, you want to do something that you've never done, you can do it. It's never too late to rewrite your story. But you first have to begin by believing that this is possible. Start actually calling yourself a writer. Mm-hmm. Then what do writers do? Well, they write, you know. Yeah. So do that a little bit every single day, and eventually you will become this thing. And, and I think that's a very simple way to begin to retrain your mind to, uh, to think and feel differently about something that maybe you didn't think previously was possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the money piece of it. Obviously, uh, I think this is what changed my perspective so much. You talk about um, we earn money to facilitate the creating. So uh, that was really um, eye-opening for me. I had never Mm. considered it in that way. But do you think as Christians, 
do you see uh, more challenge in the Christian community to accept that idea of uh, doing something like ministry or writing for money? I think most people are bad at money. And I think Christians are exceptionally bad with money because they're afraid of it. <laughs> yeah. I think they're afraid of it. You know, and the average uh, churchgoer is tithing 2 3%, sometimes less. Mm-hmm. Uh, we obviously don't know how to steward what we have. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a legitimate fear. And, and I mean, to be clear, like the Bible says some challenging things, yeah. not so much about money, but what money can do to your soul and, and how the love of money, uh, you know, is the root of all evil. So I don't think... I don't think everybody needs to be rich or should be wealthy. Uh, so I think there's that fear of that kind of prosperity gospel stuff too. Um, but I think that can bring sort of a poverty mentality that is frankly a little bit unhealthy. And I think what it really comes down to is we're afraid of more responsibility because uh, the way that we're steward- stewarding the resources that we have is not well, right? Yeah. So if I'm making $30,000 a year and I'm not giving 3000 of that a year to my church – it's understandable. Like I get a pass, I think, you know, because that's not a great wage necessarily, at least in Nashville, uh, that would be hard to live off of and certainly to support a family. Uh, and so it's understandable. You get a pass, you give what you can. Um, but I know from experience that if you're not giving 10% off of 30, uh, you're not going to give 10% off of 300. And Mm. so there is this legitimate fear that if I had more, I know subconsciously that I wouldn't, be faithful with that either. And so I'm just, money's bad. I'm just going to avoid it. And, um, I think, you know, you talk about ministry, we understand that like we give money to our church. Most of us, I think, understand this so that the pastor doesn't have to have a, you know, side job. This is true for, you know, when they're, you know, you've got a full-time minister. We understand that the, the building costs money. We understand that money is supposed to be a means, not a master. Nobody's here to just generate more money for some for-profit enterprise. That's not the point of ministry, but we need money to do the things that we feel like God has called us to do mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think um, I think of art as a gift. It is sort of a form of ministry and service to the world. And so the way we look at money is very important. If we look at money as bad, then we are going to struggle to share our gift with the world. And so on one hand, I don't think that we need to be making money we don't need to be thinking like we're making art to make money, but we do need to understand that we have to make money to make more art. And and somebody um, criticized Walt Disney when he was at kind of the, the pinnacle of his career and was starting to be very successful. He was struggling artist for many years. Um, and they said, well, you're just, you're just doing this for the money. And he said, oh, no, we don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films. And, uh, I think on a spectrum of like starving to selling out. So like I'm broke and I don't even have enough money, you know, to buy a computer to write my novel, or I'm just doing things to be commercially successful, even if I'm compromising my own values, which would be my definition of a sellout. Um, these are two extremes that most of us, none of us want. Most of us are afraid of. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we think if we start, chasing the money, we're automatically going to sell out. I don't think that's true. I think there is, and I talk about this in the book, there's a class of writers, creatives, whom I call thriving artists, who live in that tension. They're not making art to make money. They're making money so that they can make more art. They understand it's a means, but never a master. Yeah. Yeah. Great concept. That's uh, that's a great perspective. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. 
Um, in the market section of the book, you talk about the idea of patrons, those who support the arts and artists. Mm. Um, it seems almost like an old-fashioned concept. I, I'm sure totally. it still happens today. Yeah. But give us some examples of what that would look like today. Yeah, so a patron is somebody who offers their money, resources, or connections to help an artist succeed. And sometimes they offer all three, sometimes they only offer one of them. And so in the Renaissance, you had wealthy people, princes, popes, uh, you know, uh, wealthy people who would essentially commission artists to make something for them, a statue, a painting, um, a church, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and there was sometimes a political reason for doing it. There was a philanthropic reason for doing it. There were a lot of motives for doing it, but you had an elite class of people who were essentially in charge of the art getting made. And this was often the case even in like the early 20th century where a lot of the mo modern art movement was in many ways patronized by uh, bankers and by rich families like the Rockefellers. And so this is kind of a system that has continued in, into the, you know, it, it still happens today. But um, uh, what has happened recently in the past 25 years, particularly with the internet, is we're all connected to yeah. each other now. And we all have some amount of influence that we never would have would have dreamed of having before. And and so we don't have one channel. Like we're not all tuning into NBC every night, you know, for the news anymore. It just doesn't happen. And so what we have is we all have these, you know, these millions of different channels that we need to get our art into. And so in the book I say that patrons today are the people around us. And so you're being a patron to me right now, Jenny, by sharing this message with your audience. This is a channel that I'm not in. And this is maybe uh, a level of influence that 30, 40, 50 years ago you never would have been able to have. Uh, and it's made possible by technology and just the way the world works today. And so – your patron is not necessarily some rich person, you know, living at the top of the hill. Uh, it's probably a group of people. And so some examples of that are Kickstarters, yeah. um, uh, you know, fundraiser, uh, crowdfunding kind of type things where you're not getting one person to give you a bunch of money. You're getting a bunch of people to give you a little bit of money and it adds up and allows you to create your project. Uh, Patreon is a, another website, particularly for uh, creatives where they can get small donations from a group of people on a regular basis to fund their work, whether that's a podcast or a website or a book or, you know, anything. Um, and, uh, and then just like relationships, your personal network can serve as a, a form of patronage. When, uh, Michelangelo, um, at, at a very early age was brought into the Medici household, the wealthiest family in Florence, I mean, that was like, that was a really good break for him because in that house, not only was he, um, getting, uh, paid to create by Lorenzo de' Medici, um, and he was getting paid to, to be trained on site and, and learning all this cool stuff that he never would have learned in that household. He was rubbing up against some of, uh, uh, the Renaissance's, you know, the, the uh, the, the, uh, elitist members of society and, those few years that he spent in that household led to some of you know most of his connections for the rest of his life. So, so one of the kid, a couple of kids that he was playing with were eventually like future popes and princes. And so when all these kids grew up, that basically grew up together in the same house, uh, and the pope 
you know, needs uh, a ceiling painted, who does he call? He calls this kid that he remembers from his childhood. And so, I mean, that's an extreme example. But the point is, like, that was just a kid that Michelangelo was, you know, uh, playing with, yeah. hanging out with it in, in, you know, the Medici household. And so patrons are the people around us. Um, it's, it's not a system. It's not a tool. It's just people. And we all have some level of influence now. And our job is to make the right connections with those people, to give before we ask, and to stay in touch with people. And then over time, um, a lot of these people just volunteer to help you. But once in a while, it's not a bad thing to say, hey, I've got a book coming out. I need your help. I mean, I think that's sure. a very practical way. Uh, if you're an author and you've got a bunch of author friends, it's very typical. Uh, I experienced this with this with my author friends. Like when one of our friends is launching a book, we we understand what that's like. We all rally around this person. We buy a copy of the book. We sure. promote it. We tell other people to buy a copy of it. Uh, and then, you know, when it's our turn, you know, we get something out of that as well. And so in some ways, it sounds like a very outdated system. Uh, and, and it is. In other ways, it's just people helping other people get the attention and rewards their work deserves. And all of us have the power to do that for each other today. Yeah, so we're each a patron in our own way if we choose to be so, which I love that in the writing community. I love being able to support each other. I think we need to celebrate each other and uh, just, you know, boy, promote each other. So we're all in Mm -hmm. this together. And uh, so that's a a good concept. Um, So... Real Artists Don't Starve seems like a natural progression from your um, your list-building courses, your book launch courses, uh, all part of a, a similar theme. Um, how do you uh, – what words of wisdom do you have for authors who are still struggling to build their list – and or maybe haven't reached the the goals they'd hoped to what words of wisdom do you have for them i have little wisdom many stories <laughs> uh, they're all just sharing our experience you know it's, it's been that all advice is autobiography and i think that's true um uh, first of all, I, I think Real Artists Don't Starve is the progression and continuation of my previous book, The Art of Work, which mm-hmm. was about finding your calling. Um, and, and once you find your calling, the question is, could I make a living off of this? Or is that not something you can do? And I wanted to argue if you have a passion, you have a gift that you want to share with the world, uh, you can make a living off of it. Now is the best time to be a writer. Now is the best time to be an artist, create, what have you. Um, so... Uh, in terms of how you grow the audience, first of all, if, you're, if your audience is not as big as you want it to be, um, then congratulations. You're like every other writer I know. Yeah. I mean, we all want more people. You know? sure. I want 1,000. I, I, I want 10,000. I want 100,000. I want a million. It's, in one sense, it's never enough, which you know um, can be challenging if you're trying to reach some certain level of contentment. On the other hand, it always gives you something to strive for, and we always want to reach more people. I think that's a good thing. Um, So, you know, I I think the best way to grow an audience is to practice in public. Mm. Um, And so what what I, so I'm not talking about list building hacks or, you know, tricks that, you know, things that you can do to essentially trick people into signing up for your email list. I think 
What you want to do is you want to get known for an idea or a style or a voice or something, whether you're at fiction or nonfiction, you want to get known for something. Mm -hmm. And the best way to get known for anything is to uh, market your work, but do it in a way that is sharing the work itself. So uh, in the book, I talk about how Picasso became one of the wealthiest artists of all time. He was worth $500 million when he died. And he, he liked to say, uh, I want to live like a pauper, but with plenty of money. And he did exactly that. Like, I, yeah. I don't need to be fancy, but I don't want to have to worry about money. And with $500 million, you can say that he accomplished his goal. How he got started as an artist moving from Spain to uh, Paris, France, in the early 1900s, is he understood that he was a new artist, new on the scene, nobody knew who he was, and he needed to get be getting his art in the right channels. And so instead of plastering uh, artists for hire posters all around town, yeah. like because that's a form of marketing, right? But that's not really exhibiting the work that you're doing. He decided to do what I call practicing in public. And so what he did, I mean, his first, first thing he ever did was he designed a menu uh, for a restaurant, uh, a Spanish restaurant when he was living in, in Spain. Um, and I think that like these are ways that we can continue to share our work by simply doing the work but, but doing it generously in a public place where it's going to get noticed. So what Picasso did was he uh, met Gertrude Stein, realized she was a well-connected art patron at the time, and he offered to paint her. Uh, you know, she, She'd sit for him, and he would um, you know, do portraits of her. And he did 90 different portraits of Gertrude wow. Stein in the course of several months. And he gave them all to her. And he did this all for free. But he wasn't actually doing it for free. Right? He was giving some of his work in exchange for some of Gertrude's influence. And he didn't ask her to do any of this necessarily, as far as I know. Um, but you know, he understood that if he did the work in a public place, it was going to get noticed. So what Gertrude Stein did was she had a salon where uh, once a week she'd have people come over to her house. And these were artists, patrons, everybody in the art community. They'd come over and hang out and they'd talk about you know, civilized things, artistic things. And – um, you know, when you've got 90 paintings of yourself from Picasso, you're going to hang some of them on the walls. Like she really prided herself on discovering new artists. And so when people came over, they said, well, you know, what is that? Who, who did that? She goes, oh, that's, that's by Picasso. And his, his name began to spread. Um, so I think practicing in public practically means you need to do your work in a public place and share it every single day. So if you're a writer, that may mean blogging. Yeah. Uh, it may mean sharing, um, you know, bits and pieces of the novel that you're working on, not the whole thing, mm -hmm. but just your works in progress. You're just trying to give people a taste of what you're doing. And, and, and it doesn't just mean putting it on your blog and letting it sit there. It means, it means doing what Picasso did. He didn't just sit and paint in his studio or on, you know, on the street corner. He put his work uh, in the channels where it had the greatest chance to succeed. So what does that mean for writers today? I think it means uh, guest posting, writing articles for other uh, writers. It means, you know, uh, going on podcasts. And early on, you're like, well, who who's going to have me on their blog? Who's going to have me on their podcast? Remember, patronage is the process of helping each other out. The first 20 guest posts that I did were swapping posts with writer friends of mine. So find people who want the same thing that you have and and help each other get what you want. But I think... The way that you grow an audience is by simply doing the work in a public place and then leaving little breadcrumbs back to your website. So 
Uh, I teach a course called Tribe Writers, and we worked with over 6,000 writers to help them grow an audience of thousands of readers, sometimes, some of them tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Um, but we try to get writers to that thousand email subscriber mark because it's a it's an inflection point, you know, it's a yeah. tipping point. And um, the number one way that they do that is by simply writing on a bunch of different websites and then linking those articles back to a free essay or lead magnet or chapter of their book, something that people can get for free at their website if they sign up for their email list. So if you do that, if you put your work in public places, you have breadcrumbs, like literally linking back to your website, and then you've got some sort of enticing uh, offer, something that you're giving away for free in order for people to sign up for your email list, and you do that over and over and over again, uh, you know, you will get those thousands of subscribers. But it'll take time, it'll take work, and it requires a little bit of generosity and humility to put all that work out there uh, for free, but it's not for free. I want to be clear. It's not actually for free. You're marketing, which right. typically costs somebody money. And instead, you're, you're getting to do it, you know, typically for no cost. Yeah. Okay, let's close out with, because okay. this kind of leads into it, the rule of the gift. You said mm. we are giving our work, in yeah. a sense, to yep. our readers. Uh, mm. how, discuss the rule of the gift. So if I buy a book... Uh, from you for twenty five dollars, and and I read it, and I go, this is amazing. This was, this is worth more than twenty five dollars. I mean, this is how we feel about books that we love. Sure, we feel like it's a gift, right? Yeah. But I paid you money for that book, right? And so uh, um, Lewis High talks about this. He says all art um, uh, exists in two economies: what he calls the gift economy and the market economy. And the gift exchange economy is an economy where uh, it's an economy of generosity. We're all just kind of giving our gifts in hopes that they're going to help people. Um, and if all of us do this, you know, everybody gives and everybody receives, but if somebody walks around and it takes, 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 it doesn't work. And so, um, at the same time, we've got to find ways to make money. Right. And so there is this tension, like there's a real tension because I imagine almost everybody listening to this who wants to be a writer or is a writer is not thinking I'd love to write a book someday cause I'll make a ton of money off of it. I'm guessing they're probably thinking, I'd love to write a book someday because I feel like God told me to do this or I've got a story to tell or I just – I don't know why but I have to do it. And sure, it'd be nice to make some money off of it, right? Yeah. And so that is the tension that I tried – that I live in today and I try to manage in the book is we don't make art to make money. We make money to make more art. Uh, practically what that means is the first duty of an artist, of a writer, is to, is to share their gift. Without exception, you know, without fear, without anxiety of, of whether or not this is going to succeed, your first job is to do your work. Your second job is to find a way to make a living so that you can keep doing your work. And, and the whole goal of the book is not necessarily that I think every writer should be, you know, a full-time novelist or author or every artist should be making a living off of their art. If you want to do that, I argue that it's possible. Uh, it's probable if you do the work and now is the best time to do it. But I think it's very important that we get rid of this idea of the starving artist. Being a starving artist, and what I mean, that's a mentality. Yeah. That's somebody who goes, oh, I, little, little me, I've just got this book that I want to write. Nobody's going to read it. Nobody's going to buy it, but I'm just going to do it, right? Or I have all these paintings uh, in, in my basement, or, or I've got this novel in my sock drawer. I think all art needs an audience and being a starving artist is not helping your art. So being a starving artist 
is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. And if you want to thrive, if you want to succeed as a writer, as a creative, then that is like that, that's on you and you can do it, but it's going to take some work. And the rule of the gift is the idea we begin with generosity. We don't begin with curmudgeonly, uh, I got to get what's mine sort of attitude. Uh, but we discipline ourselves to find ways to make our art a business so that we can keep doing our art. Yeah. Good words. Thank you. Well, thanks for sharing with us and uh, thank you for the book. I'll be giving away copies. Oh, thank you um, very much. Through the blog. Uh, cool. I think it's a great resource for writers and artists, obviously. Mm. So thanks for the time and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. I feel so, the same. Thanks, Jane.